Let me pray for us. Father, as we come to your word, would you still our hearts, give us clear minds, give us willing hearts, that we might hear what you have to say to us and be willing to understand it, be willing to receive it, to see it as the truth that it is, and to live it out, we pray. Amen. Well, about 10 years ago, I was at a weekend away with a bunch of other young adults uh, playing sport. It's called Sports Fest, which is the kind of Baptist equivalent of State Youth Games, for those of you that know it. Uh, And I was playing squash, and and I stopped suddenly, so I went to get the ball, and, and I stopped with my right foot, and of course, my ankle turned over, and I heard a click, and it was very painful, and I kind of hobbled off the court, and I, I kind of stayed off the court for about kind of five minutes, gave it a, you know, bit of a rest, and then I kept, kept playing, because, you know, pain is just weakness leaving the body, right? <laughs> Anyways, about kind of three months later, uh, I, I realized that my ankle was still hurting, I thought, oh, okay, now's, now's a good time to go to the doctor. Uh, and so I went and got it checked out and got an x-ray done. And, you know, obviously, I hadn't just rolled my ankle, I'd fractured it. Uh, and there wasn't much the doctors could do about it because, of course, you know, the bone had kind of healed by itself. Uh, and, it, you know, even today, it still hurts if I stand on it for a long time. And here's the lesson I learned that day, is don't ignore the warning signs. You know, pain is not weakness leaving the body. Pain is a symptom of something worse. (laughs) And there are warnings all around us that we shouldn't ignore, right? If you travel along our coast, there's always those warning signs, warning about the dangers of king waves and, and, and the dangers of our coastline. There's road signs that we shouldn't ignore. There's fire alarms. There's weather warnings. There's warnings from your bank or warnings from your insurance provider. All of those warnings that we shouldn't ignore. But it's also not just warnings that we shouldn't ignore. There there are other things, kind of good things, that we shouldn't ignore either. You shouldn't ignore your best friend's birthday or your anniversary. And as we read about Jesus' birth and these stories here, they're there to show us why we shouldn't ignore Jesus. So it's very easy to relegate Jesus to the sidelines, to pretend that Jesus doesn't really matter that much. But these stories are here to show us just how special the Lord Jesus really is. And so we shouldn't ignore him. And if we ignore him, well, then we ignore him to our own detriment. Jesus really does matter. And so today, there's these three sections that we're going to look at that's going to give us three reasons why we shouldn't ignore Jesus. Number one, the birth of Jesus. Number two, the worship of Jesus. And number three, the threat of Jesus. Three reasons, the birth of Jesus, the worship of Jesus, the threat of Jesus. Uh, Last week, Glenn took us through the genealogy of Jesus, uh, which is how Matthew begins his gospel. He records uh, Jesus' lineage from Abraham right through to Mary and Joseph. And now, Matthew begins his account in earnest. 
We read there that Mary and Joseph, they're engaged uh, to be married. But before they get married, Mary gets pregnant. And at that time, in that culture, to get pregnant outside of marriage wasn't a good thing. It was seen as a disgrace and something to be uh, ashamed about. And so Joseph plans to quietly call off the marriage to limit the public disgrace and humiliation that Mary would have received. But before he can do that, an angel of the Lord speaks to Joseph and says that this child is from the Holy Spirit and that he should go ahead with marrying Mary. Now, this virgin conception is important for us for two reasons. Firstly, it's a reminder of the power of God. See, if God can do something impossible, if God can make a young virgin woman be pregnant and give birth, then God can certainly do the impossible task of making sinners right with him. See, the birth of Jesus is teaching us that we need saving and that God can make that happen. We shouldn't ignore Jesus because his birth is teaching us about the power of God to save his people. As the angel says there in chapter 1, verse 21, Mary will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. See, Jesus has come to save his people. And the first thing we learn about Jesus' birth is that God has the power to make that happen. But the second thing we learn about the virgin conception is it teaches us how God will save his people. See, God will save his people by becoming one of us. The conception and the birth of Jesus is the moment that God became a human being. The angel says to Joseph that this baby will be called Emmanuel, God with us. But that's a little bit weird because the baby is called Jesus, not Emmanuel. Thought about that? But Jesus is Emmanuel in the very literal sense of that word. It's not a title, but a description of who he is. Jesus is God with us, and he's with us by being one of us. And that's important because if Jesus didn't become one of us, then he could never save us. Uh, There's this guy called Gregory of Nazianzus, who was a 4th century bishop, and he says it this way. He says this, whoops, sorry. For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. And assume there doesn't mean an assumption, you know, like how we might make assumptions about a person or a situation. What he's saying there is he says, it's talking about what, what Jesus has put on. What Jesus didn't put on couldn't be healed. That's why from his birth to to the grave, Jesus assumed he took on everything about the human experience so that he could bring salvation and healing to the whole human experience from birth to grave. And so Gregory says elsewhere, he says, for he assumes the poverty of my flesh 
that I may assume the riches of his Godhead. Let me read that again. He assumes the poverty of my flesh, that I may assume the riches of his Godhead. See, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Jesus took on our flesh and blood so that the riches and blessings of God could be ours. So why shouldn't we ignore Jesus? Well, because he is the God-man who became one of us to save us. And so we're reminded of the depth of God's love for us. In order to save us, God became one of us. That is love in action. It's an expression of immense love that is willing to get down into the muck and dirt of this world in order to pull us out of it. See, it's only as a human that Jesus could die in our place, and it's only as God that he could live the perfect life that we never could. And so Jesus bridges the gap between our humanity and God to bring us salvation. That is the ultimate example of self-sacrifice and humility, that God would so love his world and the people in it that he would become one of us in order to save us. And if we ignore Jesus, then we're going to miss out on the immense love of God and we'll miss out on the forgiveness and salvation that he offers. Well, the second reason why we shouldn't ignore Jesus is because he's someone who deserves our worship. Now, we're probably fairly familiar with the famous kind of Christmas story that we read about with the Magi. And let me just read the first verse there. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they say to the king, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Everything there that the Magi say to Herod is offensive. See, Herod is functionally the king, but he's the king who took the title by force. He's the king simply because he had the largest army. And so when the Magi say, where's the king of the Jews? They're asking, where's the true king? You're not the king. Where's the real king? We want to know. And to rub salt into the wounds, this king has a star. A star or some sort of astronomical event was said to accompany great kings. And Herod, well, he didn't have a star. There was no star for him. But this king does. And thirdly, they've come to worship this king. How offensive can you get? <laughs> they don't care about Herod. They're just passing through. He's not, worship of their wor worship. He's not worthy of their worship and praise. They want someone better. And so you can't get more offensive than that. This is a classic example of a foreigner doing something uh, stupid in a foreign country because they don't understand the culture. They are after a bigger and a better king. And Herod, of course, knows that the people of Israel have had these prophecies about the birth of a Messiah who would come and rescue his people. 
And to some extent, Herod has tried to set himself up as being the fulfillment of those prophecies. That's one of the reasons why he rebuilt the temple in Israel. Because the prophecies are about the, the king who would come and make everything new and better. And so he's Herod who's come and he's made the temple new and better. He's fixed it. He's the one who's done that work. And so he's the Messiah. But for Herod, it's all just a sneaky political move. All he wants is for the Jews to accept him. He wants to be on their good side. He's set himself up as this rogue king. But the point is, is that Herod knows that Israel are waiting for a Messiah, but he doesn't know much more than that. And so he calls together Israel's religious leaders and he asks them where this king will be born. And they know their Bibles really well, and so they say straight away that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, a town that's just a few hours right away. And so Herod sends them off with these specific instructions to come back and to tell him where the baby is so that he can then go and worship him. It doesn't take a genius to know that he has no intention of worshipping this usurper. He wants him dead. And so the star leads them directly to Jesus. And you may be wondering, as I was wondering, what's the deal with the star? You know, normally we look at this passage at Christmas time, and normally on Christmas days when we've looked at this last, and there's not really any time in that service to consider what the star is and what it means. But I've always had kind of a few questions about the stars. So let me just kind of unpack that for a moment. Let's just take this rabbit hole for a moment. Uh, symbolically, the star has links to rulers and kings, both in the Jewish scriptures, like in Numbers chapter 24, but also in the surrounding Greco-Roman world. But the star is obviously not meant to be taken just symbolically. It's something that rises and leads and then stops exactly over the place where Jesus is. I don't know about you, but that sounds more like Tinkerbell from Peter Pan than a real star. See, real stars, right, move across the sky, but they don't lead and stop over a specific house. Now, you can go and do the research yourself and try and work out if there was a comet or an alignment of planets that would map onto the correct time and place. But I think the simplest answer is simply to say that it was an angel, We already have heaps of examples in the Bible of angels appearing as astronomical signs. Think of the pillar of cloud and fire in Exodus, when God rescued his people out of Egypt. And there's even a number of places in the book of Revelation where John sees stars and the stars are angels. Not to mention that angels shine brightly and that angels are mentioned all the way through Jesus' birth at various points. So for what it's worth, I reckon the simplest explanation for something that leads and guides the Magi and stops over a particular place is to say that it was an angel. And the angel appears as a star because the Magi were really into astrology. And so they would instantly know that this was something really important uh, that they needed to follow. Anyway, if you had those sorts of questions like I did, hopefully that kind of helps you a little bit. Uh, But let's get back to what's going on here. These foreigners, these magi, these pagan magicians, these astrologers, they're led directly to Jesus 
And when they get there, they bow down in worship and they give him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. You know, the gifts that we give each other uh, tell us something about what we think of the other person. If you give your mum or or your wife a vacuum cleaner for their birthday, (laughs) then that says something about what you think of them. But these gifts, these are expensive luxury items. Frankincense and myrrh, they weren't things that you could get at Kmart. These were things that you had to import. And these magi, they give these expensive luxury gifts, gifts that you would give a king. Now, the modern-day equivalent of a magi would be uh, like a clairvoyant or a psychic or a medium. And, and particularly, they have an interest in astrology and horoscopes. And these magi, these kind of psychics, clairvoyant-type people, they travel to a distant country to worship this baby boy. We're not told exactly where they come from, but we don't need to know that. All we need to know is that they are outsiders to Israel. They're outsiders physically because they come from a different location, they come from the east, but they're outsiders spiritually. They don't believe or worship the Jewish God. And yet, they call Jesus the King of the Jews. Yeah. They know that Jesus is the king of Israel. He's not their king, and yet, weirdly, these outsiders still bow down and worship him and give him gifts. Now, why would they do that if Jesus wasn't their king? Well, they do that because they recognize that Jesus isn't just the king of Israel, he's their king too. It's a mistake to think that Jesus is a random guy in history who's largely irrelevant to you and me, who who perhaps had this claim to be king over a small patch of dirt in the Middle East. It would be a mistake to think that. See, the Magi understood that Jesus was not just the king of this small part of the world. He was the king of the whole world. And so it would be a mistake to ignore Jesus. Because Jesus is the king who deserves our worship. He's the king of the world, and he's the king who died for us and who rose again. And he did that because our biggest problem isn't our struggles at work or our difficulties at home. Our biggest struggle is our sin. Sin is our innate desire to rebel against God. It's the desire that that we want to put ourselves on the throne to be in control of our lives, to live life our way without God. And so we need someone who's going to fix our hearts, to change us from the inside out, to deal with the consequences of sin, which is death and judgment. And so in Jesus, God himself stepped down to be born as a baby, to become like us, so that by becoming like us, he could take the punishment of death and judgment on himself. And after he did that, after he died, he rose from the grave. See, his death was our death, that we should have died. And his life now gets to become ours. This is the riches of the Godhead that Gregory of Nazianzus was talking about. We get to live because he lives. 
his life becomes ours, just as his death was ours. And so now that his saving work is finished, he sits on the throne ruling this world. You know, the road that Jesus took to the throne was completely unexpected. But the Magi knew that he, he was a king that they needed to worship. They didn't know the ins and outs of how it would all work out. But they could see where it was going. And, you know, no other king has done for you what this king has done. No other king has laid down their life for you. If you want a reason to worship Jesus, then this is it. So I want to say, if you're still checking out Jesus, if you're still wondering what all the fuss is about, then this is it. Jesus is the king who laid down his life for you and for me. You know, when it comes to worshipping Jesus or following him, you might have a picture in your mind that looks a little bit more like drudgery than joy. You might think that following Jesus looks like something that you have to do, it looks really annoying, it looks burdensome. But did you notice in the passage that when the Magi see that the star has stopped, the star has stopped over a house, they were overjoyed. See, worshipping Jesus is not drudgery. It's not a chore. It's not an imposition. Worshipping Jesus is a joy. And how could it not be that? If this king willingly died for you, then following him, it might be tough at times, it will be tough at times, but it will always be a joy. And you can hopefully get some sense of that as you listen to Christians as they talk about what it's like to follow Jesus. But, you know, you can't really experience the joy of following Jesus unless you actually follow him. You will never really know what it's like unless you go all in. It's like hearing someone talk about their favourite meal, how amazing it is, how the taste is so good. But unless you try it, you will not know that experience for yourself. And that is true for Jesus. There is a great joy to following the Lord Jesus, to worshipping him. But you will not know that unless you go all in, unless you put all your cards on the table and you submit yourself to him. See, to worship Jesus the King is a great joy, but here's the rub. Jesus is the great King of this world, then he's also a threat. And Herod saw that very, very clearly. You know, Herod sends the Magi off to Bethlehem, but he also tells them to come back and to tell him where the child is so that he can go and worship him. But look at chapter 2, verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, 
Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled out of what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized what he that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. See, Herod had a reputation for being a cruel king, and killing a village of toddlers and babies is exactly within character. And Herod did that because he knew that this baby, this king, was a threat to his rule. If this baby really was the king of Israel, then his kingdom was going down. But Jesus isn't just the king of Israel, he's also the king of the world, which means that his rule is also a threat to our kingdoms, our own little personal autonomous lives that we create for ourselves. Jesus is a threat to that. You know, we all like it when we're the ones in charge. And if we need Jesus, then, you know, he's there that we can call on him whenever we need. He's over there. He can come in when we need him. See, either, either we rule Jesus out of our lives completely or we treat Jesus like the butler who we just call in when we want him to come and help us out. See, we're, we're like the kings and queens of our own lives, the masters of our fate. But if that's your view of Jesus, if you've just ignored Jesus or if he's just the butler, then you have completely misunderstood how much of a threat Jesus is to your life your self-rule. See, Jesus isn't just a king out there for other people. He is your king too, whether you know it or not. That's why when Jesus begins his ministry, he says this, he says, the time is coming, oh sorry, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the gospel. Why does the coming of Jesus Why does the coming of Jesus' kingdom mean that we should repent? Well, it's because the coming of his kingdom means the downfall of your kingdom. And so that leaves us with two options. Like Herod, we could keep rebelling against the king... We can do whatever we want to hold on to, your, to our autonomy. But if we do that, then we will lose. As Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. If you choose to try and hold on to your autonomy, then if you, if you try to live your life your own way, then you will lose. And you will have to live with the consequences of that decision for the rest of eternity. That's one option. It's possible. You could do that. Many people do. Option two, though, is to repent and to believe the gospel. To repent means to turn around from living life your own way and to submit yourself to King Jesus, 
to his rule and to his protection. That's what it means to believe the gospel. See, the gospel is the person and work of Jesus. He is the great king who came to save us from the consequences of sin and judgment. And so Jesus says, he says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. If you want to save their life, then what you need to do is you need to give it to Jesus. Give it over to him to lose it for his sake. We need to stop living for ourselves. Stop trying to be in charge. Stop pretending that we know what's best. And it doesn't matter if you're a kid or a teenager, a young adult, middle-aged or elderly. Jesus is the king. Not in the future, not sometime when you're ready, but right now. And so to ignore him would be to miss out on the greatest joy that you can ever have. And to also open yourself up to the judgment of God. Now, when it comes to repentance, that's something that as Christians, we just need to keep doing on repeat. Just keep hitting the repeat button when it comes to repentance. You know, there's a sense in which we make one big turn to Christ initially, but unfortunately we're so sinful that we, need, that we keep on turning away. And so every day, every moment needs to be a moment of repentance a course correction as we keep realising that we're not submitting to Jesus the King. Sin, sin is an ugly thing that keeps on popping up in weird places. It's like trying to push a balloon underwater for it only to pop up somewhere else. As soon as you put sin to death in one area, it, it comes back up somewhere else. But the good news is that Jesus is the king. And so one day he will get rid of sin completely. But for now, we need to keep repenting, keep turning to him, keep living for him, knowing that he is the good king who will always forgive us when we ask. Let me pray for us. Father God, as we consider the Lord Jesus, particularly his birth and his, his uh, young childhood, would you help us to see the greatness of who he is? Help us to not ignore him. Help us to live with him as our king, we pray. Amen.